Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, April 21st. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we have a decision to designate Madison Bumgarner for assignment, which opens up a spot for a much more intriguing young pitcher in the Arizona rotation. So we'll talk about their options. We have a dominant prospect in the minors that we're going to talk about on the pitching side. We had another dominant pitching prospect get quickly promoted to the big leagues, Mason Miller. We talked about him a bit last week. We'll talk about his debut and some expectations. And we saw Mookie Betts play shortstop this week, so we're going to dig into that Woo-hoo. as well as a few other things. Come on, that's awesome. This is awesome. Let's actually start with that because I okay. think it's the sort of thing that we can we can kind of gloss over sometimes. Like, oh, Mookie Betts is just playing shortstop, and he used to be a second baseman. Most of his big league career has been uh, right fielder, and that's fine. Mookie Betts is a phenomenal athlete. People know about the bowling. Yes, he and is. You watch him, though. Thursday night, I think, was the first game he played at shortstop. He... He makes this play, 6-3 double play, that mm-hmm. it looked like he'd been playing shortstop for 10 years, Keith. Yep. I'm actually pulling up his minor league stats because I thought he played a little shortstop early, early in his career. And, I mean, yes, technically that is correct. He played one game after signing uh, in 2011. That was at shortstop. And then he played... 13 games, 106 innings at shortstop the next year in uh, short season Lowell, RIP. So what does he have? 108, I could just go to the bottom, 114 or so minor league innings, including a little bit of fall league, I guess. Total at shortstop. None of it since 2013, so 10 years. 10 years. Didn't you just say 10 years? Good job. Been a while, yeah. It's unbelievable. Not that I ever thought he couldn't do it. Like, he got moved for various other reasons, I think would be the better way to explain it. And then he moved to second base. It's like, oh, this guy's elite there. And then he moved to center field. It's like, oh, he's really good there. Oh, he moved to right field. Oh, he's elite there, too. <laughs> he could probably catch. He was a little small for that. But still, I wouldn't doubt him. It's strange because I see similar defensive athleticism in Isaiah Kiner Falefa. Mm-hmm. Much less interesting mm-hmm. offensive player. Of but, course. But he has been a catcher. He's played on the left side of the infield. He was out there making incredible catches in center field on Thursday for the Yankees. And that's a great glue guy to have on your bench. But when it's Mookie Betts, when it's a fixture in your lineup and you're the Dodgers and you have this hole at shortstop caused by the departure of Trey Turner and the unfortunate spring injury to Gavin Lux, suddenly mm-hmm. you just kind of backed into an amazing solution to your problem because they can find different outfielders to mix and match. If they have to go make a trade for their outfielder, corner outfielders are relatively easy to find. Competent shortstops are very difficult to find, and they may have yes. a more than competent shortstop right there already. So I think this is just really exciting. It's, uh, again, something that I think people could accidentally 
overlook for how rare it is and just how good he might actually be at playing this position with so little experience there. I feel like, you know, if we had had this discussion in January, right, and said, well, why don't they put Mookie Betts at short? We would have said that's ridiculous. It's totally absurd. He hasn't played it in 10 years. They have other options. It's a very different conversation in the middle of the season. Okay, I guess we're early in the season, but you know, once the season is underway, right, and now you are looking at your actual other options at short, and they're not very good. And for as strong as this Dodgers farm system is, they didn't have somebody just sitting there as a shortstop who they could pull up and stick at the position. They have a lot of second basemen, as it turns out, but they didn't have another shortstop. And I am, if Betts is willing, I'm completely in favor of it. And even if he's, say that he's five runs below average the rest of the season, but plays mostly regularly at short. I don't know if that's actually the plan at this point, right? This is all us getting very excited over three innings and one amazing play at shortstop and just betting, hey, this guy's an elite athlete. He can probably figure it out. But if he's five runs below average defensively at shortstop, but then given the value of his bat at the position and the fact that it allows them somewhere to get someone else into the lineup who is a better offensive player, because obviously if it's not Mookie Betts, it's somebody who doesn't hit playing shortstop for them. They are almost certainly a better team with this alignment. You know, whether it's Miguel Rojas comes off the I.L., you know, they say, oh, put him back at shortstop. We'll put Mookie Betts in right field. They're probably worse off. I think the only way that this doesn't work is if either if you think Betts is going to get hurt at shortstop, which I don't have any particular reason to believe that that's true or or that that's more likely, I should say. Or you think Betts is going to be, you know, minus 10 runs on the season or worse if he's just going to be an atrocious defender at shortstop. I would leave him there for a little bit and see what it looks like. And yeah, hey, right. Uh, there's there's not a ton of downside to me in this situation, given the circumstances, right? You don't have a lot of good options at this point with Lux out for the season, Rojas on the IL, and your system just, again, super productive. I've ranked it as the best farm system in baseball. They just happen to not have a shortstop ready to come play in the major leagues right now. Yeah, and if you had some sort of belief that you know Miguel Rojas, when healthy, is good enough to be in your lineup against lefties, then sure, you play Mookie Betts back out in right field in those matchups, and then when you're facing righties, Mookie comes in and plays shortstop again. I think you could—you mm-hmm. don't have to do it every day, but you could still do it often. No, you can mix and match. Absolutely. It, I mean, it's just flexibility, which is so funny because it is something that teams preach and work with, including the Dodgers— with prospects, right? They move guys all over the diamond. And, you know, the answer is we're just trying to increase versatility and get playing time for guys. I think one of the big reasons they do it is because you're hoping that some other team, whether it's through a scout or through analytics, looks at your player and says, hey, we think he can play shortstop. Even if you personally don't think Joey Bag of Donuts can actually play shortstop, but you let him play 30 games there in double A, some other team might look and say, we think he can play shortstop, and suddenly you've increased trade value for the guy. Obviously, it's not the case with bets, but it is interesting to me that we have so, this very clear philosophy from a number of organizations, including the Dodgers, of versatility, versatility, pushing that for all your minor league guys. and then, But very few teams practice what they preach on the major league side. Once a guy is at a major league position or maybe has been moved off a specific position in the majors, it's, it's forbidden to put him back there. And I say this is a way of crediting the Dodgers for even thinking to do this because I think a lot of clubs, I believe a lot of clubs would just not do this. Nope, Mookie Betts hasn't played short in 10 years. He is our, you know, our superstar, long-term contract, long-term investment. We won't take that risk. 
Yeah, it's interesting. The the closest thing to it this season, as far as a star maybe playing out of position, is the expected return of Bryce Harper and Harper mm-hmm. playing some first base. Like, but doing that for the first time is not nearly as difficult as playing shortstop for the first time at the big league level. No, well, that's right. You're two, two basically opposite ends of the defensive spectrum. Um, you know, and, and Harper, I have no, I'm. I don't think he's ever actually played first, but I'd have to look this up. I have no memory of Bryce Harper playing first base, except maybe maybe he played it for an inning or two at some point. Um, but I feel like he'll be able to pick that one up pretty quickly. And that's just about, you know, obviously he could still move. He's still athletic. It's literally just about limiting how much he has to throw. Um, but a former catcher, a, at one point a very good right fielder, a guy who a lot of people thought he'd end up at third base, guy who was former pitcher, actually. I, I mean, these guys are similar, not similar in their specific tool sets, but both kind of elite athletes who adapt very quickly to these kinds of changes. And and I feel like Harper, I have no worries whatsoever about Harper sliding back into first base. I do see, we as we're recording this, Matt Gelb's piece on Bryce Harper coming back in record time from Tommy John, I think just went live a little while ago, which is also you know, potentially one of the most interesting stories of the year. The expectation was he was going to be out for at least half the season. And now yeah. he might be back by mid-May reconstructive elbow surgery on November 23rd. And now they're talking about an early May return being possible. Like DH first base, whatever. That's incredible. This is like Marcus Stroman tearing his ACL in, was it March? And was back in September for the Blue Jays, which also I think at the time was a record. I mean, you know, do, I don't know that we truly keep track of this stuff, but still Tommy John surgery, even for a position player, it was nine months. Pitcher, 12 to 16 Right. And this guy, when nobody's rushing pitchers back, I hope anymore, but you could, you could try this with a position player, especially with Harper. He's battle play at first base. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, it's one of the benefits of the evolution of medicine is that we're going to reach a point where some of these longer term injuries are not quite as long term. We find different ways to mm-hmm. rehab, find different ways to do the actual procedures. Uh, this seems more just like an outlier. Some people are fast healers, some people push through the rehab harder and better than others. And, and it's could be some combination of those things that's enabled Harper yeah. to make the progress the way that he has. It, it actually reminds me a little bit of Adrian Peterson in the NFL tore his ACL and got back, I mm-hmm. think it was in nine or 10 months. And everyone's mind, minds were blown because you're talking that's about crazy. an, an yeah. NFL running back coming back and being the same guy God. with the same burst off of that surgery. That changed everything. Yeah, let's well, not too dissimilar from Stroman, right? Where you think of how much they also depend on their knees, you know, how much pressure, you know, whether it's as a running back, obviously, or a pitcher, really both your legs, both your, your, uh, your, your whole lower half is so key to generating power. And for these guys to get back that quickly. And then, like you said, be as good as they were before the injury is unbelievable. Giovanni Gallardo did that too. He tore a ligament oh, in his he? knee God, in good memory. early May and got back at the end of that season. Started wow. on like late September of the same year. Good grief. Yeah. Nice and that was one of the fastest recoveries I've ever seen from yeah. an ACL before. Yeah. We just don't see that. It is, I, you know, I don't have, I don't have analysis of it, right? Because these guys are such outliers, but it's kind of amazing. I'm just wowed by it. You know, these are, yeah, the best athletes in the world, best at their craft and still find ways to amaze us. I think it's also one of those things, if you've ever been around a real person who has suffered an injury like that, a person who's torn an ACL, or a person who's had <laughs> Tommy John surgery, you mm-hmm. see 
how devastating it actually is, the procedure itself, yep. the recovery from it, how hard the work actually is, and you appreciate it a lot more too. Uh, I think with professional athletes, we just have this expectation that time is going to pass and they're going to go back to being the same superhero version of themselves they were before yep. uh, going under the knife. It's like a little cartoon. They go into the hospital in a wheelchair and they come out and they're all they're all healed. They're fine. Well, I you know we do this this sort of magical thinking a ton with Tommy John for pitchers where. People are, you know, you see the the worst example is just have him have the surgery. Oh, just get, you know, the parents were like, we just want to get the surgery now, which is particularly crazy. Um, even when there's not an actual tear or a full tear necessarily. But there's also this belief that Tommy John is a riskless surgery. And there are plenty of pitchers who, first of all, it's major surgery. There was that horrible story of a pitcher at George Mason, I think it was, or some school in Virginia who actually died as a result of surgical complications. Um, but even leaving that aside, just in just thinking in the baseball sense rather than the overall health sense, there are so many examples of guys who come back and they're not the same. They come back and they plenty of guys come back and don't throw as hard. We had one of those when I was at the Blue Jays. The kid came back from Tommy John surgery, went from 87 to 90 maybe to 80, 82. And a lot of guys come back and their stuff isn't quite the same. The one I always think of is um, uh, Dylan Bundy, who obviously was one of the best straight up high school pitching prospects. I think I've certainly that I've ever seen who came back and still flashed some of it, but the bite on his breaking ball was not the same. I think that would probably be true for Lucas Giolito too, who's changed himself quite a bit as a pitcher since then um, to still become, you know, I mean, he had a, at least one season where he wasn't, he's still become an above average pitcher, but the, it, he's not the same. Guys do not just automatically come back the same. Jay Groom, that's who I was thinking of. Jay Groom had a plus-plus curveball, 70 curveball in high school, and had Tommy John surgery, and it's never been the same since. And he will still get to the big leagues, and probably I think he will still have a career, but it's not. he's just not the same guy that he was in high school. Even with guys like Giolito and Bundy, you know, they've come back, they've had good productive careers, you wonder how players like that are going to age, too, if they're going to age a little more harshly than players who didn't go through all of that. The cumulative wear and mm -hmm. tear, the scar tissue and all that, how that's going to impact a player in the long run. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on to the news that Madison Bumgarner has been DFA'd by the Diamondbacks. And Keith, you know, there were warning signs at the end of Madison Bumgarner's time with the Giants that he wasn't the same guy that he was at his peak, right? In his early to mid-20s, mm -hmm. few players are. With that, if you told me when the Diamondbacks signed him prior to 2020 that Madison Bumgarner was going to go through four seasons 
and pitch to a 5.23 ERA and be well below a strikeout per inning. We're talking under 7 Ks per nine. I would have said he had to have gotten hurt. Something had to have gone catastrophically wrong physically for him to age that poorly. Uh, this yeah. is one of the harsher turns I think I could have imagined for a guy that was really good for a long time. And I know some people who are uh, maybe fans of of other NL West teams would say, well, look, he pitched in San Francisco and, and that helped pad his numbers for a long time. But this is someone that was dominant on the postseason stage multiple times, had an excellent peak. I mean, he ran four consecutive seasons with a sub three ERA from 2013 to 2016. It's just a, a crazy fast peak with a much sharper decline than I would have anticipated. You know, I think a lot of this, this guy pitched a lot at his at his peak. And then this is not a criticism. I'm not saying he was overused in any way, but guys like that, right? It, it is, um, you know, he burned bright and fast. And then it, there were signs before the Diamondbacks drafted him that this might not go particularly well. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's, that's, you know, they just got the worst of it. They didn't even get the good year or two at the very start of the whole thing to, Maybe say, well, you know, we're just paying. We'll we'll live with the bad back end of the deal, in uh, you know, in the hopes that we get um, you know one or two really good seasons at the very beginning. And instead, they just got no, not much at all. It's one. It's a rare. You know, I don't think this Diamondbacks front office has made a lot of bad moves. That's, I mean, I think that's probably their worst. It's certainly their most glaring. Um, it was out of character. You know, it was a a, a push for a past peak free agent where they made a large investment and it seemed like they might be buying his name and his reputation more than they were actually buying him as a pitcher, um, the value that he was going to provide on the field. And, and this is the right move. They acknowledge it's sunk cost. We got to move on. Yeah, I guess maybe there's a few things in play here with the signing. You always wonder how much ownership medals in a signing like that when it seems of out of character for the front office. I also think they, they just needed innings at the time. And at the very mm-hmm. least, you thought, even if this guy is a, for ERA pitcher for the bulk of the contract. We're probably getting innings because that's something he's always right. done. If you go back to that peak from 2011 to 2016, Madison Bumgarner threw 1,276 and two-thirds innings, only three pitchers. David Price, James Shields, and Clayton Kershaw had more regular season innings than Mad Bum during that time. And of course, <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of playoff innings tacked on there as well. So that cumulative wear and tear could be part of it. I guess the other part of it for me, Keith, is Bumgarner, he didn't have premium velocity for most of his time in the big leagues. So I guess that no. was maybe the one the one skill attribute you'd look at and say, maybe he won't age all that well because of that, like not having a 94-95 mile-hour fastball. He was more of a low 90s guy, and part of it, I think, was extension, right? Being tall, long-levered like he was, that Tough extension made everything play yep. up earlier in his career. Yeah, but what it ended up, happening is i think the qual a lot of the quality the secondary characters he did lose some he's lost some velocity but also the quality of his various pitches has also gone down and i think that you know maybe they just didn't anticipate that i I, you know it's hard for me to overly criticize the diamondbacks here um because you know in, in part i think if you go back at the time of the deal i was critical of it at the same time he got worse much faster than I think even I expected as somebody who was fairly a skeptic and said, you know, I certainly wouldn't have given him a deal of that length. Um, but he just, like I said, he just got worse faster than expected. And that's, you know, there is, this is a risk of signing older pitchers, even if they've been fairly healthy, unfairly effective when it goes, sometimes it goes very quickly. Roy Halladay at the end of his career was just done. 
Um, Tim Linscombe. Yeah, when his peak was over, he kind of crashed pretty quickly, unfortunately. And you know, I hope it doesn't cut, you know, people end up, you know, Hall of Fame debates, et cetera. But I just, my whole thing is just remember them for what the peak was. Appreciate them for what they, what you had in their peak. Madison Bumgarner's peak was really, really good. That uh, yes. 2014 World Series. I mean, I think he was the difference maker in that series. If he doesn't oh, pitch incredible. as often and as effectively as he does in that series, Mm-hmm. The Giants probably don't get that third ring in five years. Yep. An all-timer of a performance. Absolutely. Do you think he's a Hall of Famer? Even though it's a different shape, he didn't get the chance to accumulate deep into his 30s to to get the back-of-the-baseball card stats that often take pitchers like this and put them over the top. But would you would you give him a vote based on the peak? No, nah, he's going to be a no for me. Just looking at the career totals, I understand the argument that it's a Hall of Fame peak. I generally have voted for, I'm a little more of a small hall guy, and I have generally voted for, um, I want guys who are peak and longevity. Yeah, I'm looking at the calculation from Jay Jaffe's Jaws metric, which looks like oh, yeah, a seven-year peak. The seven-year peak on Bumgarner has him at 30.2 war, and the average Hall of Fame pitcher is almost 50 war in that same is window. That right? so he's Well, so much of it's the postseason, and that doesn't count towards that total. Yeah. And I mean, that's going to be, I think, look, a lot of people are going to vote for him, right, Mm -hmm. based on that. And it honestly, if you take literally the argument, it's the Hall of Fame, he's pretty famous for being good, not famous for bad reasons. Obviously, we have a few of those. But like, no, this guy is actually like it was famous for being great for the impact he had on the field. So I don't have any particular issue with that, but I think, you know, I take a more sort of evidence-based approach. I do lean pretty heavily on various measures of performance. There's no single one, Um, but I do look at the various wins above replacement calculations and he falls pretty short because he didn't have the tail of his career. You know, he was a, a strong peak. He's in the Dale Murphy category where Dale Murphy, great player, you know, one of the best in baseball. And at around age 29 or 30, he looked like he was going to sail into the Hall of Fame. And then obviously that did not happen um, because he didn't have the end of his career. And I've I've struggled with that because I have memory. I'm old enough to remember him being one of the best players in baseball and very worthy of a Hall of Fame selection when he was younger and then just didn't have the back half. You know, my emotional side says yes. My rational side says no. And I do tend to lean towards the rational side. <laughs> well, with the decision to let Bumgarner go, it does open up a regular spot in this rotation. We know they've got a lot of quality pitching prospects that are either in the big leagues already or near big league ready. Currently, Dre Jamison's in the rotation. Ryan Nelson's in the rotation. Uh, Zach Davies is also hurt. So really, they've got one spot that's kind of permanently open with the Bumgarner departure and one temporary spot. Brandon Fott seems like a shoe-in to get a call-up and have a chance to run with a job every fifth day, right? I would hope so. I think he's ready. He's actually pitching extremely well in for Reno so far this year. He's given up a few home runs, but that's the PCL for you. Um, so, yeah, I'm 100% behind calling him up. I thought there was a decent chance he would end up in the rotation just to start the year and not criticizing them for going with Nelson and Jamison. Like, oh, everything's pointing in the right direction. Um but Fats, Fats seems like the next guy, and he is there. He's their best pitching prospect. He's the guy with the best combination of kind of upside, but also like some fair probability there too. And I think he'll be effective 
I, I hope and think he'll be effective right away. Like they could get league average performance out of him the rest of the year. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I think this is the move you make if you believe that you're actually capable of making the playoffs. I generally love this for the Diamondbacks, and I, I do think we'll see a lot of Brandon Fott currently in first place as we enter play on Friday. Just a game ahead of the Dodgers, game and a half ahead of the Padres. Could be a three-team battle all season long for the NL West. I think the Diamondbacks still profile to me more as a wildcard team as the season rolls along. Uh, we'll see mm-hmm. what happens with the Dodgers on the health front. Will Smith is hurt right now. I mean, the Padres, of course, got Tatis back this week, so they're going to hit. It's only a matter of time before the Padres start putting some runs on the board. But the NL West thing that's really caught my eye so far is the Giants just look awful. The record reflects it, right? They're 6-12 and through the first 18 games. They just look a clear level behind the three teams that are ahead of them in the standings early on. And I wonder if the Giants might just turn themselves into very early sellers, kind of playing that that middle, making a few moves that make them better in the long run, because it's just hard to look at this team right now and see them making up enough ground to be a dangerous team in October with this core. They just they look flawed. And Keith, I wonder how much of, of their success a few years ago, the unexpected kind of magical season they had, the Buster Posey swan song season, how much that has really kind of skewed perception and expectations around the Giants because no one saw that coming and they've been a shell of that team in the time since, which isn't for me, this is not criticizing their front office. It's more just saying maybe they had an all time great high variance, positive outcome season. And that Mm -hmm. just completely messed up the way people were perceiving where they really were at as an organization from the outside looking in. Yeah, I could see all of that. Um, you know, it's also they've missed on some big free agents. It's not for lack of effort, right? They've, you know, they were second on a lot of guys, which I know is you know often cold comfort. And I, I, I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of that also they they planned this roster around potentially getting to getting one or more big free agents this winter, and didn't. They got some good second tier free agents, but that's clearly not enough. And I, I wonder if that's also part of what we're seeing here was there was a plan. There was a whole strategy in place, but it required landing one of those big names and they were not able to do so. And that has really set them back. And, you know, on top of that, they're, you know, they've got some really interesting prospects in the system, but a lot of these guys have either gotten hurt or they're just not getting to the majors as fast as you would like, um, Gosh, Marco Luciano still isn't back. I had to double check. I know he's on his way. He's been uh, rehabbing. But Helio Ramos just kind of becoming a disaster. Nobody saw that coming. Um, you know, Luciano getting hurt. Luis Matos having a hugely disappointing year. And honestly, some whiffs on some high draft picks, too. Joey Bart just completely flopping as he did. Um, yeah, another huge, um, huge setback to the plan where you're – thinking all along this guy's going to be in the majors going to be producing for us on some level and, and just absolutely nothing so far and not, not even like a quality backup. Um, as I speak, I just pulled up Luis Matos. He's actually off to a really good start in double A, which is really good to see because he's a guy I liked quite a bit going into last year and was sort of inexplicably awful in high A last year. And then, you know, could still see, I saw him in fall. He could still see the tools there, but it was sort of, I don't know. I don't exactly know what happened. It just seemed like, he wasn't ready for high A pitching. Tiny sample so far, but he's off to a really good start, at least. I imagine at some point this year we will see Kyle Harrison. We're probably going to see Casey Schmidt 
as well. I, what kind of player do you think Casey Schmidt's going to be at the big league level? He might be a regular. I mean, there was a lot of talk of him being a, you know, oh, he's the next Mac Chapman. He's a superstar. I, I don't think he's that great of a defender. And But my biggest thing with him is it is a he is a low average, low OBP guy with power. You know, could be a regular because he hits for enough power. Um, but the low average, low BP, low, relatively low contact rate, you know, high strikeout rate is going to limit him to something. He's not going to be more than a regular for me. Above average defender, maybe a plus defender at third, but not elite. This isn't Nolan Arenado. This isn't Scott Rowland at third. So there are ingredients here where you could say, I could see this guy being a regular. I have a hard time seeing him being more than that. He is a more of a complementary piece than an than a core piece, whereas Luciano's got a chance, if fully healthy, um, to be a core player. Luis Matos has a chance to be a, a core player for them. Um, you know, Kyle Harrison, uh, you know, I know he's off to a rough start, but again, it's the PCL. He's got a chance to be a core player for them. Um, you know, I could see those guys becoming part of the next really good Giants team. Um, Carson Wisenhunt, too, was their second rounder last year, and he's only made a couple of starts so far in high A. Um, he's a guy who I could see being part of the next really good Giants rotation. So they've got some of those guys, just none of them is close. Other than Harrison. Harrison will get there this year. But all these guys I'm talking about probably don't debut until next year. And I don't think that's a lot of comfort for Giants fans right now. Right. I know they haven't seen Mitch Hanniger play yet. He's been down with an oblique injury. Once Hanniger's back, he's an everyday guy. He will yeah. help them put more runs on the board. He's a good player. Yeah, love Hanniger. Just not That's helping. just not enough. That's not going to bridge the gap right now. And I think when you look at the injuries around the league, too, you have this core of kind of mid-ish, mid-rotation-ish sorts of starters uh, up and down. Alex Cobb and Anthony Sclafani, Ross Stripling, mm-hmm. who was in the bullpen for a while, Mania, like You could trade any or all of those guys to teams in need of pitching and actually get some more talent back. You're not going to get a windfall for anyone, but you could at least deal pitching when other teams need it. So I guess that's one thing they could end up doing later on this summer. You know, Jack mm-hmm. Peterson could go somewhere else. Universal DH certainly helps uh, make you find trade suitors for someone like that. Maybe Brandon Crawford. I just don't know if anybody would see him as a number one upgrade at shortstop, but I could just see this team getting completely torn apart by the by the trade deadline. Yeah, Crawford looking cooked. I mean, they were at a point where, oh, he's just going to end up not playing, and I, I even said they might consider releasing him when they had Correa, uh, or look like they were signing Correa. And the part, it's, this is right the worst possible outcome now, where they don't get Correa, because of a medical thing. And then Crawford, they they turn back to Crawford, who is in a tiny sample, right? I don't want to bury him yet, but off to basically as bad of a start as I predicted he would be. This is the worst case scenario for them. Even just getting a little more production out of some of these older guys would make them more respectable, I guess. I mean, they're just, it's very hard to see them contending in that division, but they are worse than I thought they would be. I think I had them around 500 for the year. And right now in the early going, especially given the players they've got and who's likely to come back, it's hard to see them. 500 seems a little optimistic now. Yeah, I'm right there with you as far as having those reduced expectations for the Giants. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed Internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, Nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Let's talk about Andrew Abbott for a few minutes. He is absurd right now in the minors, and I think you tweeted this uh, on Thursday. He shouldn't be at double A right now. I mean, there's probably a better case that he should be in the big leagues than even getting the yeah. bump one level to triple A. That's what I said. I said, call him up rather than just like, what are you waiting for at this point? Because two arguments. I mean, first of all, look at who the Reds are rolling out there in the rotation. Sessa and Overton and then uh, Levi Stout gets smoked and uh, Luke Weaver does, you know, four runs in the first inning and they're just kind of out of it for the rest of the game. I do not believe Andrew Abbott is worse than any of those guys. I think he will be better than all of those guys I just mentioned right away. And there's also the argument, this is a 24-year-old now um, who had uh, four years' experience at Virginia. Um, he was a COVID, you know, fourth-year junior, essentially, undrafted in the pandemic year. Although he was known, like everyone, he was on my board, he was on other people's rankings. But chose to go back to school, ended up having a tremendous last year at Virginia. Went, I think, in the second round. I just pulled it up. He was a second-round pick, yes. Um because he had a high-quality fastball, but he never threw super hard, and he could show you an above-average breaking ball, above-average changeup, and seemed like he had really good field to pitch. And I am kind of a believer, too. Virginia has sort of this one-size-fits-all approach to a lot of their pitchers. And I thought, maybe you just get him out of there, and the command improves, too, because you can loosen up the delivery. What I did not anticipate is that he'd be sitting 94-95 this year with the same huge induced vertical break on the fastball and with the same quality to the second pitches. And he has punched out, I think it's 64% of batters in three starts in double a with just three walks in 15 innings. Um, he's given up six hits, three walks, and it's not like it's a low BABIP thing. Nobody's putting the ball in play. What you're wasting bullets, right? If you send him to triple a, all you're doing is making the triple a team better. You're not developing him any further. You just need to get this guy to the big leagues now. And we're late enough in the season, you've actually pushed off free agency if that was a consideration, the service time stuff. Just bring him to the big leagues. He will continue developing better in the big leagues. Your big league club will be better. I think I, what I said in my tweet is he's the fourth best starter in the organization. 
you know, Green, I know Green just got hurt, but Green, Ashcraft, Lodolo, who's next? It's Abbott. It's clearly yeah. Andrew Abbott. Just put him in the big leagues. You are a rebuilding club. Get him on there. You know what? If he has a five ERA this year, I actually don't think he will. But so what? It's a development year. You're not trying to win this year, but you will be better. I mean, they got a chance for, they could have a fully homegrown rotation by the, the middle of next year, which would be absolutely incredible. And gosh, that would do, I think the Reds draft really well. I've said this for years. I think the Reds are one of the better drafting teams in all of baseball. But we didn't even mention, they have Lion Richardson came has come back from Tommy John surgery. So he's 23 in low A, so he's basically rehabbing right now, but he's punched out more than half the batters he's faced. He's throwing harder, at, as hard as or harder than he did in his last full season in the minors. I would expect him probably to get to double A by the end of this year, just once they've built him back up. There's there's guys coming in the system. There's some. There's enough coming in this system, and there's enough young talent on the major league club that they're going to have to go out and spend to supplement what's around it, but you can see a pretty cheap homegrown core developing here that will allow them to do that, allow them to say, okay, now we're going to go out and sign one or two major free agents to complement. I don't think they have enough talent in the system right now to build the whole contender, but to me, Abbott is the next piece that you get to the big leagues that also helps show ownership. We have done our job by developing homegrown talent that costs nothing. So we have all this room in the payroll. Let us go sign a couple of big free agents. Yeah, it was just a few off seasons ago. They were active in free agency. They made a few they moves were. and it just didn't happen to work out. The timing was poor in part because it was right before the shortened pandemic season too. Mm-hmm. I think if they've got a cheap enough core, we will see them push the spending up just a little bit as much as Bob uh, <laughs> Castellini is one of the more frustrating owners in the league right now. You think about the young pitching. If the young- he spent though, like you said, it's not... Yeah. yeah, I mean, he should, you know, the, the things they say are one thing, but the behavior says they will spend. So, you know, and they keep the drafts continue to be fairly productive. Like, you know, I wish they were getting more on the international side. Um, but, you know, Ellie De La Cruz may change that entire narrative all by himself, right? So the guys are coming. Like, I, I feel like there's enough here. There's not a whole championship team here in the system plus what's in the big leagues, but there's enough there that if they're willing to spend, I could definitely see them becoming a contender next year. Maybe it's the year after. Maybe I'm a little bit ahead of it um, because there's just going to be some development time. And because all of those starters in the big leagues too, Green, Lodolo, and Ashcraft are all still works in progress. This could be a relatively quick turnaround though, because they do have that group of position players making its way through the minor leagues. And Mm -hmm. I, I could see the Reds even without a big splashy free agent move, because again, I think it's more second tier sorts of free agents, which is fine. And those are still upgrades. They could have a vibe around them similar to what Arizona has right now, where they're surprising mm-hmm. people next April and they're uh, a possible wildcard team. That That's the type of talent they've started to assemble, even if they're not necessarily a, a team that's going to go toe to toe with the Dodgers or the Mets or the, the, the Giants in the, in the NL, not the literal San Francisco Giants, but the best teams in the league. Maybe they're not quite on that level a year from now, but they're at least much more exciting to watch and a lot more competitive in that little bit of time. But I'm with you on Andrew mm-hmm. Abbott. Why waste the the pitches in the minors? Why not let him develop in the big leagues and make sure he's as good as he needs to be for you to make that run as early right. as you possibly can. You solve more problems at the big league level. Like I don't I'd have to go back and see what I actually wrote about him in my um like he wasn't on my top 100. He certainly would be now. But I said, you know, it's a really nice back end starter. He's way more than that now. The the 
big bump in his velocity this year and that he's holding it. And I've just talking to some some people who have access to some of the more specific pitch data for him in double A. Like it's it's all there, right? He's holding the velocity deep in the games. The secondary characteristics on the fastball, including that vertical break, still there. Like he all he's done is just increase the velocity while holding steady on everything else. That is a completely different prospect, right? He is one of the breakout guys like Tanner Bibby and Gordon Graceffo last year, who were both actually kind of similar. They're right-handers, but guys who did throw super hard, but had pretty good feel and you like the secondary stuff. And, oh, he might be a fourth starter. And then they suddenly, both guys suddenly come out bumping 98s. Okay, that changes the whole thing. Abbott's not bumping 98, but it's 94, 95 from the left side with all of this additional stuff. Like that guy might be a number two starter. I mean, he could easily end up passing one or more of those three guys who are already in the rotation who look like they are at least long-term rotation pieces. We could argue how good Green, Lodolo, and Ashcraft I'm talking about, how good they ultimately are, but they're in the rotation for the foreseeable future. I would not be surprised at all if Abbott passed one or more of those guys. That's how different a prospect I think he is now versus what he was even the last time I saw him was July of last year. He's he is It's a different animal in the best possible way. Yeah, and, and Ashcraft, by the way, off to a great start this season, missing more bats than he did last year. Not surprising. Change that you, slider. You look at the stuff that he has, the adjustments he's made, it, it makes sense. Graham Ashcraft, I yep. think, could be pretty filthy for them, a little bit overlooked because of, of Green and Lodolo. So some good things happening. Another another one, credit to the to the Reds scouting department. Another one, I think he was a sixth rounder. And they've developed him too, right? It's a little of both, but... They keep finding players. When you are running low payrolls like that, and they're probably always going to run with the lower payrolls. They're in one of the smallest markets, at least. They are, um, you've got to find guys in, you've got to find guys in the draft. You've got to find guys in later rounds. Um, they've done a pretty good job. They've hit on a few first rounders. Green, I think, is a success. Lodolo seems like a success. Jonathan India, huge success, obviously. Uh, very bullish on Cam Collier, who's only 18 and playing in low A right now. They've got, they've done a really good job. It's just they need, they're going to need to spend. Um, and I do, they, the one thing I will say, as optimistic as I sound here, just to, to because I'm me, I have to sound <laughs> one note of pessimism. Like, they need these guys to stay healthy, right? We are talking about these four starters, and Green's obviously already had the Tommy John, but Lodolo's had a bunch of IL stints over the last couple of years. Any of these guys could get hurt. We are sort of projecting as if these four guys will stay healthy and continue developing. And the one thing I think I even said about the red system this offseason was there's not a ton of starting pitching depth coming behind. Now, I wasn't really thinking Abbott is what he is today, but they don't have a lot of depth there. If one or more of these guys gets hurt, fails to develop, has to go to the bullpen, I don't think that's super li- that last thing's super likely, but just the nature of pitching, right? They're on a little bit of a knife edge with that. They're better on the position player side. Um and it's I could see a situation where one or more of these guys just doesn't become what we think they will, and they end up having to spend on the pitching side versus the position player side. Still, I think they're in the situation they're in. They've done a really good job to get to this point where they're at right now. You mentioned Lion Richardson. What kind of arsenal does he have post Tommy John? And is he is he going to cruise through the system? Is he going to go multiple levels with ease this year, just based on his age and and what he currently brings to the table? You know, right now, coming back from Tommy John, I think it's mostly he's working more fastball. And But the good news is the velocity has been outstanding, and he's missing a lot of bats with it at a low level. Obviously, it's low A. He pitched at high A in his one year, um, his one full, I think it was his only full season, actually, uh, in the big leagues. 
but he had the, you know, he could, he could always spin it. Um, he's a really good athlete. He was a football guy, also another two sport guy. And he was seen like we all, he was, I think the second or third rounder. Um, I'm trying to think of what he was, but he was like, he was pretty well known as a, um, as a prospect, but he was a long-term guy, right? We're betting on athleticism and arm strength. So far this year, the fact that he's blown guys away with as good velocity, he had a really good breaking ball. We have to see it more coming back from Tommy John. And so far, at least seems to be throwing strikes, um, which is also something you worry about with Tommy John guys, that it's just going to take more time to get back to command and control, whether that is just a matter of sort of rediscovering their delivery, or I know I've even talked to one or two pitchers who've talked about it's just the fear it's going to break again. It's hard to get over that belief that you're going to blow out a second time. But I don't think he blows through the system like gets to the big leagues this year. I think he gets to double A by the end of this year because he should at least return to high A once he's once they feel like he's completely rehabbed essentially at low A. And I think he's going to miss enough bats at that level to push himself to double A before the year is out. That yeah, probably gives him a shot at a 2024 debut, though, for the Reds. So could be one mm-hmm. more guy that joins that group of, of young pitchers currently in Cincinnati. Uh, we saw the debut of Mason Miller. I think the last time you and I spoke, it seemed like a high probability thing that he would come up and begin working as part of this rotation. It was four-seamer, slider, cutter. I think he threw one changeup out of the 81 pitches that he threw. <laughs> the four-seamer is electric. Uh, the cutter is is also good, and the slider looks pretty strong too, Keith. It's really, with Mason Miller, like you said before, it's, it's health. Right? It's health and maybe a little bit of command, but he looks like he has frontline rotation stuff. Yeah, he's just got no history at all of staying healthy, and it was shoulder last year. He threw 14 regular season innings, another 16 innings in fall league, so 30 total innings. Missed almost the entire regular season with a with shoulder soreness. He did not have surgery, which is usually for the best. You know, shoulder surgery success rates are are much much lower. Not impossible, but they're much much lower than they are for um, than the success rates for elbow surgery and i worry a little bit that like you said he does not throw many change-ups doesn't really have a functional change-up is that going to limit him enough against left-handed batters that he you know ends up less of a starter than you anticipate or possibly ends up a reliever because he just has such a platoon split or is the fastball good enough that he can miss enough bats going up at the top of the zone with that and then just kind of play with speeds, throw some cutters in there just to try to keep lefties from sitting on the fastball. I don't know. That's an unusual formula, but I don't want to rule it out because the quality of the stuff he has is so good. Uh, my concern on him coming into the year was much more about his health than his arsenal. But it was. it's also easy to look at a guy who's 97 to 100 with a plus or better slider and a history of shoulder issues and say, just put him in the bullpen. I wouldn't do that. If I'm the A's... When they called him up, it's like, yeah, of course. This guy's a, he might be a ticking time bomb health-wise. Just put him in the big leagues and see what happens. And I'm glad they're doing that. I would just let him start. At least there you can control his workload very carefully. Um, hey, if something, you know, barks, you're a little bit sore, fine. It's, it's you know, come out after 60 pitches because something doesn't feel right. At least you can manage him very carefully there. It's a little harder to do that if you're carrying the guy in the bullpen in the short term, at least. Quite the path to the big leagues for Mason Miller, going to Waynesburg College in Pennsylvania to begin his collegiate career. Got drafted out of Gardner-Webb, spent one year there. There have been two other players in big league history to play at Waynesburg University. 
long, long time ago. Chuck Coles and Dick Gray. I don't remember either one of them, of course, long before I was around. So, yeah, Mason Miller, the uh, first pitcher, I believe, to have that opportunity. Uh, really good stuff, though. Hopefully, hopefully he can stay healthy. Maybe it's only 100 innings this year in total because of the shoulder stuff he's dealt with, because of limited workloads, but uh, could be a nice piece for the A's. I had one more thing I want to talk to you about today, Keith. The the, the arrival of Zach Neto. Mm-hmm. Really fast-tracked at the big leagues for a position player. Getting, getting to the majors less than a year after being drafted. He's a first-rounder, and the Angels had a clear need. Okay, like you can sort of like rationalize it. If he's your best option... I'm on board with that if you think he's ready. It's hard to know if he's ready, but I was starting to think about Neto in the context of other rookie shortstops, right? So you have Ezekiel Tovar right now in Colorado, who's actually younger. He's 21 years old, turns 22 in August. International free agent signing years ago. He comes to the Rockies system, gets this opportunity in the last season, is the starter right now. Hopefully he plays well enough to stay there. And then Anthony Volpe, drafted out of high school, getting through the Yankee system, also in that same age range. And it's just, to me, this is one of the more challenging things about assessing players is looking at what the steps they were taking to get to the big leagues and how different those paths can be, even though they're the same age and may all have very long, productive big league careers. Um, so how do you know with Neto if he's ready or not ready when he has peers younger than him that had more time in the minors instead of in college? When somebody asked, did somebody ask that on Twitter or said, you know, is he ready? I have no idea. This guy played 44 games in the minors. And, you know, so far in what has he played, like five games so far? Not great. Uh, Of course, Mike Trout wasn't great his first hundred or so played appearances in the big leagues, too. So I'm not burying him. I'm not really drawing a conclusion here, but I just have no idea. Yeah, he Neto destroyed double A in the 37 games he was there. 342 average, 418 OBP, 550 slug. You couldn't ask him to do a whole lot more than that. You can't argue with that, but it's just such a small sample. Um, you barely went around the league. I don't think he did this time, this year. He was only in double A for, what, seven games before they called him up? Like, I, I don't know. I hope he's ready. I love the player. And, I mean, it was interesting because they drafted for need, but also drafted a player exactly in the right range, too. So it wasn't a reach. I can't argue with it. They could also argue we got the best player available, and he also happened to fill a need for us. I just have no idea. We don't see a lot of guys do that. Um, you know, this is like Ryan Zimmerman territory, right? He was drafted in June. He was in the big leagues in September that year for the Nats, 17, 18 years ago. Um, that worked out fine. Ryan Zimmerman had a pretty good career, after all. Maybe that's Zach Neto. Maybe he had nothing to, to work on, nothing to develop. He just needed to face big league pitching. That would be a pretty amazing story because this guy came from Campbell, right? Not He didn't play in the SEC. And nobody questioned whether he would hit better pitching. He just had almost no experience facing better pitching. He was in the Big South. He played only briefly on the Cape. That's it. That's probably the best pitching that he ever saw. And then he, they signed him. He went to high A for a week. And then he finished last year with about a month in double A where he played extremely well. Went to double A for a week this year. And then they called him up. This guy hasn't faced a lot of upper level pitching. I just, I have no idea. I, I yeah. hope he's great, but I, like, this is, bet, betting on baseball is crazy enough to begin with, right? That's a pretty good way to throw away your money. But placing any kind of bet on what Zach Neto is going to do, say, the rest of this year, I have no idea. You might as well just light the money on fire. A few more uh, alumni of note from the Campbell University history. Check this out. Cedric Mullins played there. You probably remember that. I mean, 
It's recently enough. Gaylord Perry actually was a Campbell University. I certainly didn't know that. Yeah, there's, there's my fun fact of the day. I knew I'd find something. There's 12, 12 big leaguers, including Zach Neto from Campbell, that have played in the big leagues. They have a guy again this year. Yeah, Cade. I, I don't know how to say it. Is it Keeler? K-U-E-H-L-E-R. He's a top two rounds pick for this year. I mean, it's pretty great. Like, I'm a huge fan of seeing mid-major programs kind of take that step forward and become, you know, it's not like they're going to move into the SEC, but become competitive with some of the big boys, both in terms of on-field performance, but also in producing prospects. As much as I love going to see SEC and ACC games because the quality of play is so high, I'm more than happy to go to other schools and see them raise their quality of play with, you know, when you've got a Neto one year and a Keeler the next year and Campbell's had a bunch of other sort of slightly lower picks. You know, I think that also helps them generate going forward to continue to recruit top players um to going forward to see to say hey look we we produce high draft picks we produce players you can come okay lsu doesn't have nil money for you come play for us for a couple of years you can still get drafted high and make money there defensively do you actually like him at short long term or do you think he ends up moving to second base sooner rather than later once they have someone else they like it short is he moving off that position I think he's a shortstop. Most guys I talked to uh, who saw him last spring were, I th- I'm trying to remember, actually, God, it feels like last year's draft feels like it was about six years ago at this point. Um, but it's funny. I actually said, I, w- I went back to try to confirm what I wrote about him. I said I wouldn't be surprised to see Neto debut before September. I guess technically I was correct about that. He debuted before September. Do I get any points for that? Sure. Yeah, you could have some points. Okay. Good. Redeemable the um, gift shop. Perfect. Yes, you do have to exit this uh, podcast through the gift shop. Um, but I think he's a shortstop. I think he could end up like a 55-60 defender in time. I'm not moving him off the position. Uh, there's always the chance you end up as a team, you end up with a you know an elite defender where you push him off. But I thought a big part of his value was... You got a shortstop who makes a ton of contact and seems to hit the ball hard enough. It's funny. He had an exit velocity of, I think, 109 the other day, and that might be a, a, a lifetime high for him. His thing was always he put the ball kind of on a line so consistently that even if his exit velocities were just above average but not elite, he was going to put a bunch of balls in the seats, hit a ton of doubles, and do that as a shortstop. That's a really good fairly safe package to take at that spot in the draft. Um, you know, I'll be curious to see a couple of things. Obviously, contact has not been great for him in the, whatever, five days he's had so far in the big leagues. You know, he's got to keep up those very high contact rates. But also, if, if he is hitting the ball harder than ever, that's pretty interesting. Maybe they got a better player than we realized. Yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on that max exit velocity to see where that power ceiling actually is. 109.9 early on with 17 batted ball events for Zach Neto. Uh, part of me also wondered if maybe they skipped AAA for him just because of it being a PCL affiliate, Keith. I mean, do you think there's any any thought to taking some hitters that you think are ready and saying, we don't want them to learn bad habits in those environments? Even though the pitching is better than AA, the environments change guys' approach in, in ways that sometimes work against them. 100% favor that. Favor skipping... Um, favor skipping uh, AAA for hitters or for uh, PCL. And particularly certain PCL parks 
for hitters or for pitchers, um, which, you know, it's a shame for the affiliates. I understand they're, you know, the owners of Salt Lake and Albuquerque and Reno, et cetera. Like, sorry, it's not a great development environment. You know, the way the ball flies, Amarillo, we're running into this now, where if you look at these Diamondbacks pitching prospects we were talking about earlier, a lot of those guys at least struggled with home runs there. And Dre Jameson struggled just across the board, I think, in Reno last year. Yeah, It is, the ball flies, pitches don't necessarily move the same way. And do you start to try to make adjustments that you'd almost have to unmake when you got to the big leagues? Because you're not going to play in environments like that. The one team that could argue differently is Colorado. They could say, all right, well, Albuquerque might help prepare you. Um, if you can succeed at all in Albuquerque, you can succeed in Denver, right? I, that I would understand. But for a lot of clubs, I could completely understand saying, we're just going to skip AAA for you. This isn't going to this isn't going to help you develop and or we are not going to learn anything from what you do there. If you are a hitter and you, know, you go there and not only do breaking balls not break the same way, but fastballs don't, fastballs with movement don't necessarily move the same way. So is it just like extended batting practice for some of these guys? Particularly if it's a player where your concern is breaking ball recognition, for example. Um, it, that I think you just risk at least having guys waste time, if not actually go backwards. I feel like with pitchers, you really do risk them going backwards. If it starts to get into their heads a little bit about becoming homer prone or prone to high contact and hard contact, and they change what they're doing, you risk setting them back as well. Right. You find guys that suddenly are trying to nibble too much and they, they're not in the zone as, as much as they need to be, or they're not trusting their stuff as much as they should. And that creates a bunch of, of longer term problems. I think that just, it's the byproduct of these these parks having similar elevation to Colorado, right? Salt Lake City's 4,200 feet. Like that's, ball's going to fly in Salt Lake City. There was this thing they're talking about getting an expansion team, pushing for an expansion team. The A's may or may not end up moving to Las Vegas. Like these are not great environments for baseball. I'm not talking about markets. I'm just talking about altitude and dryness, et cetera. Like this, this is far from ideal for baseball. And I don't think anybody wants to see another rocky situation where it's just that difficult to build a winner. I absolutely believe that being the Rockies GM is the hardest GM job in baseball. Not, I'm not even talking about ownership. That's a whole separate thing. But your challenge building a winning team at that altitude, even with the humidor, is greater than it is for any other team in baseball. And the guy wanted grade Rockies people on a curve, so to speak, because of the greater challenge that they face. I don't think we really want to put another team in an environment like that. There are other places we could, baseball could move a team or put an expansion team that does not present that same sort of situation. No, I think that's why you hear Charlotte and Nashville and Portland a lot. I think those are environmentally better places to play baseball from the sense of not, not creating these extremely hitter-friendly environments. Uh, we are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder... As you pass through the gift shop, you can get a subscription to The Athletic for $1 a month for the first year at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Uh, if you're still hanging around Twitter, Keith is there at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. It's important to spell names correctly now with all the check marks disappearing. I don't care about the check mark otherwise, and I'm not paying $8 a month for one. That's clear. But uh, yeah, spell Derek right, spell Keith right. That will go a long way towards helping you avoid uh, the many, many imposters out there. I bet Keith has more imposters than I do on Twitter by a lot since he's got a lot more followers than I do. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. We're back with you on Monday. Hey. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.